just to warn you tonight, um, what we're going to talk about here is the um, most, probably, I don't know, may, some people say the problem of evil, you know, why does God allow bad things to happen? If this happened, how could God be this or so forth? Next to that, and sometimes people say those may be equal in terms of difficulty. This is the most difficult subject in all the Bible. In fact, this is the most difficult subject in all philosophy. The whole issue of if God exists, and we as Christians believe he does, we're going from the Bible. If God exists and God is in control, then where does that leave you and me? Does that mean that we're robots? Does that mean that if we do have some ability to choose, some people call that free will, uh, thanks man, um, whatever it may be, does that mean that we are the ones determining everything and all God does is know what we're going to do? So this is going to be some pretty, pretty in-depth, difficult stuff. So the thing is, if, we, if you get confused, don't worry about it, okay? A lot of times in church we want to have stuff, I'm like, okay, I understand that, that's easy, got that, Sunday school, you know, I got all that stuff. This is some pretty deep stuff, so when we go through it, um, we're going to take it step by step, and just because we cover one part doesn't mean we're denying something else. That, For example, if once we get to the point of God being very much in control of events, don't think, well, if these verses are saying that, then therefore we don't have anything to do um, with, with God's plan. So here's kind of the idea for both of these messages that we're going to try to unpack. And I think that this is biblical. Um, God is in control of all events in which we are responsible for our actions. Okay? Um, and the first statement here is from uh, Richard Wormbrand. He's, um, uh, some of you may be familiar, he was the Romanian Christian who had been in prison for years in Romania, had been tortured. In fact, he testified before Congress, and there's pictures all over the internet or history books of him lifting his shirt before Congress and showing what the communist Romanian guards did to him because he was a Christian. And one of the questions that was asked to him is, how, how did you hold together during your prison sentence? And he says, only the presence of the Almighty. So incredible, incredible stuff. He's got a book out that you can get from Voice of the Martyrs called Tortured for Christ. Some of the most challenging, convicting, uplifting stuff that you could ever read. And I think Voice of the Martyrs will send it free to you, um, where it's like seven bucks for shipping, something like that. But here's, here's a state that Richard Worm, Wormbrand made. He said, quote, unless a person distinguishes well, he cannot think well. What, what do you think he's trying to get at with that statement? Yeah, if you don't define terms well, it muddles your thinking. We ever been in conversations where that's been the case? We, we both think that we're talking about some of the same thing, but we actually have different ideas on what it is. So we're going to try to define this stuff, go straight through the scripture, and this is going to be some interesting stuff. So here is the question that most people ask when they come to this subject. And here it is. How can we believe that God is in control of all events, while we are held responsible for our own actions. And some people believe if God is in control of everything, then somehow I've got to be a robot or a pawn, and God is just moving people on the chessboard. And if that's the case, then why am I held responsible for what happens? Because how can you hold a robot responsible, morally at least? So that's the question that a lot of times um, comes up. So here is the first question that we're going to examine. We're going to go to the very basics. Is God in control of all events? 
what, what do you what do you think that that the Bible paints? We're, we're going we're to kind of pan out here with the video camera and get a wide angle lens. Let's think in terms of Genesis to Revelation. Start from uh, all the way until it's over. Do you think that God is in control of all events? Yes. Yeah, and, and we're going to look at some, some texts that actually uh, say that that is true. And we're going to look at this book. We're not going to go into it. We're going to talk about some people who say that God does not know what's going to happen in the future. And we'll discuss that. Very interesting. Number two, uh, does God sin when we sin? Let's think about these categories. When we think about God being in control of all events, when there are people who sin, if God's in control, doesn't that mean that He's doing the sinning? That's right. God doesn't sin. And our verse for that was, by the way, this is a great verse to have in your pocket for people who ask these questions, and they will come up when you talk to your lost friends or people who don't come from a Christian background. Uh, James 1, beginning in verse 13, Let no one say, when he is tempted, I am tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So where does sin come from? Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Okay? We're going to get to that. We're going to get to that. See, once again, we're going to try to, we're going to, try to take it line by line. And a lot of this stuff may, may seem like, okay, well, if God is in control, then when we sin, does that mean that God is sinning? Uh, no, it doesn't. We'll, we'll unpack this. And once again, um, if a lot of this stuff is confusing, we're going to bring it together, but it's going to be separated by a few weeks. But I'm going to upload this. I'm sending Matt to Matt tonight. The whole kit and caboodle. There's like 60 slides on here. So you want to download it, or if you want a copy from the office, I encourage you over the next few weeks just to look at it, let it soak in. And if this stuff seems confusing, welcome to the club. All right? And so, uh, good, good question, Susan. We'll get to that. Number three, how can we explain God's control of all events and acts of human evil? We'll get to that. Okay, I just, I just want to you know, throw that seed out there, let it germinate, because these are questions that will come up. But before we jump into the text, and we're about to jump into the Bible here in just a second, I want to point out some things that are in most of our minds, things that we don't even assume, but it, it shapes the way we think. One of these would be um, presuppositions, which is an assumption. It's like an unconscious um, action of our thought. Western culture. This is what a lot of us think subconsciously. If God exists, he owes us life, health, and the certainty of happiness. And that's wrong, right? But, but why do you think so many people get bitter when things don't go right? They only see their immediate Okay. Yeah, good. Good. So like we just see for a moment, right? Um, have you ever heard anybody say, ask this question, why would God cause, why would God let this happen to me? You ever heard somebody say that before? Okay. 
and I, I had never thought about this until last semester when a professor, when we were talking about this issue, he said, did you know that up until about the 1700s-ish, 1600s, Enlightenment times, he said people did not ask that question. They asked, they were surprised when anything good happened. Right? And I, I never thought about this. It's so, so amazing when we look back at Scripture and world history. What was the life expectancy before modern times? Yeah, yeah, like our young people would have been really old. Uh, th- think, think about uh, things like um, back in the day when you got a fever. Today is a fever a big deal? No, I mean, not a problem. Even sometimes it's like, yeah, you know, they're, they're ha- so-and-so's having knee replacement surgery. Let's put them on our prayer list. I mean, you, you take that back several hundred years ago, it wasn't a possibility, and most surgeries ended in infection and death. I mean, you, you just think about not having modern medicine, and not only that, there was no U.S., there was no Bill of Rights. The best thing that you and I could possibly hope for is that the king would have been good for a few years. We hope, and we hope that his wife gives him kids or whatever he wants, and outside of that, it's just going to be constant slaughter, um, rape, the Crusades, and that's like um, John Piper said that human history is just a long conveyor belt of bodies. So just the question for us to ask in terms of bad things, God, how could you ever let this happen to me, shows that that question is shaped by our Western culture and our time in Western culture. Because had we been born hundreds of years ago, we would have been blown away for, quote, good times to roll. Okay? Um, and also another thing here is Western culture um, we have this, this, I guess, this ingrained belief that I have the right to be able to control my own destiny, don't we? I mean, we're talking about fierce individualism. We're talking about if anybody ever tramples on my rights and my free will and mine, if there's somebody else who's calling the shots for my life, that is automatically to be banned. I'm not even going to consider the possibility that I'm not in absolute and total control of my own destiny. If we kind of sense that, we don't want to get on a, on a rabbit trail, but maybe politically, whether a person comes from the right, don't touch my guns, or whether a person comes on the left, don't touch my, quote, sexual freedom, whatever you want to put in there. In America, it doesn't really matter which political party, there is, there is a fierce desire to say, I am an individual, it is my life, my rights. So often when we come to the Bible, and once again, just because we're saying that, we're not saying something else, but often when we come to the Bible, we read it with a view that whatever happens, I'm the one who has to make it all happen, and it's got to be beneficial for me. Maybe that's reflected in some preaching. Have you ever heard preaching like that, right? The word of faith is in your mouth. And it's up to you. And if you have enough faith, then you will be healed. And you, you, you. And we just take a basic look at the New Testament. And Jesus healed, Jesus healed a lot of people who didn't have the faith, right? Jesus healed the guy who his friends lowered him down. Jesus healed all sorts of people, like the dead people. The dead people didn't have faith, right? Jesus just showed up and raised him from the dead after they were dead. So often what we hear in church and what we even do when we read the Bible is we read it through an American lens instead of taking off the American glasses and just reading Scripture for what it's worth. 
Okay, any, any questions here? I know we're already, already in the deep end of the pool. One thought so. that I had about that is one thing that no one ever talks about when they read through the book of Job is what was Job like after that experience was hmm. Because it says that, that adversity builds character. And how much character did he have after that experience? Great point. Great point. Kind of funny when you think about it. Yeah. Like if Job was morally impeccable before, I mean, even making a covenant with his eyes not to lust, what would he be like? That's a great, I've never thought about that. Y'all thought about that before? That's a great point. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, Here's a few biblical presuppositions, okay? These are the things that clash with our culture. Um, This may not seem too offensive to us, Romans 3.23, but one biblical presupposition is that all have sinned. That means you can point your finger at anyone and say, God says that you're a sinner. And then when you look at the, how many fingers pointing back? Three? Yeah, three. three. You had to check that out. Three fingers pointing back. I'm also a sinner. That means that there is not one naturally good person in all the world. Why would that seem offensive to our modern Western culture? Good. Yeah, excellent. And here, here's something that's embedded in this common verse that a lot of times we gloss over. To say to someone that you're a sinner means that you violated someone else's law. That means that you violated someone else's standard. Because a lot of times, I mean, let's just be honest, if it were up to us to call ourselves sinners, a lot of times, we probably would, but a lot of times there's excuses there, Right? You know, they did this to me before I, I cussed them out. Or they did this before I got angry. Or you should have seen how long I put up with her. Or he has just been like this for years and finally one day I let him have it, right? Like we've got those embedded excuses. So it's very easy to look at ourselves and say, well, by my own standards, I'm not that bad. But what this is saying is that your standards don't matter at all. The only standard that matters comes from the one who created you, and he says that you've royally messed up. That's offensive. Another biblical presupposition is that all are born with a sin nature. This is the primary argument of Romans chapter 5. And we're going to break this down probably the next time we look at this subject. But um, some people today will say that we're born in a state of innocence. Okay? And the point at which we become a sinner is when someone volitionally, intentionally sins. I actually thought that for a good while. And then I started reading through the book of Romans. You know what Romans says? Is that every person is born with a nature that is inclined to sin. And because of this, everyone is this. Hold on, that that kind of seems unfair. This is getting ahead of ourselves, but it's so amazing in Romans chapter 5 when the Bible talks about all have not only, chapter 3, all have sinned, all right? Chapter 2, or actually the first part of chapter 3 through verse 12 and 13, basically all are scumbags, okay? We'll look through this. I mean, it just gives like, you know, the asps, uh, poisonous snakes are in their tongues. And you're like, oh my goodness. And for, for ancient people, that would have been like the worst metaphor you could have. But at the end of Romans chapter 5, it talks about Jesus, who is the second Adam. This is an amazing thought. 
It's saying that you all have sinned because your hearts are corrupted. You're all born, Romans chapter 5, with a nature that is against God. But what God did to overcome that is he sent his son to correct the mistakes of what Adam did that was passed down. And if you believe in Jesus Christ, go to Romans chapter 6, right? Uh, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God, and then it says something, what was about, about um, the wages of sin is death, but the, help me out, the, the gift, the gift of God. So it's almost like God is saying the human race is so bad, they all sin because their hearts are corrupt, they're all born in a corrupted state, but what I'm going to do, I'm going to send the Savior, and I'm going to, number one, help them with that stopping to continue to sin, but also I'm going to replace that old nature with a new nature. So Romans chapter 5, in a sense, at first you're like, well, does that mean that God is creating all these corrupt robots? It's not saying that, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but it's saying that even if that was the case, that God sent a solution through Jesus. Romans is is an amazing book. Um, Number three, this is probably the most offensive one. Not only of all sin, all are born with sin nature, but all are deserving of judgment. Um, Jesus in Luke 13 basically says that all persons are willful rebels against God and God's justice, like we studied last week, uh, obligates him to give them judgment. Thus, even life itself is mercy because it is an extended offer to repent. Remember the metaphor that Jesus gives about the tree? It wasn't producing any fruits wasn't producing any fruit, and then all of a sudden the owner says, cut the tree down. Why does it even use up the dirt? Let's put something else here. And the man who actually worked the tree said, give me a little time. Let me fertilize it. Let me water it. Let me pray for this person. This is in God's sense. Let me give this person time to repent. Let me allow them to meet another Christian. Let me allow somebody at Rocky Mountain Baptist to invite them to church again. Let me have, give them the chance to read the Bible when they have an empty evening. All of that. And the result is that the tree would bear fruit in repentance. And so um, all are deserving of, of judgment. Any, any questions or, or comments at this point? It's kind of, like a, kind of like a dark, dismal case, right? Like a depressing. I mean, this isn't one of the things that you'd see on like a Christian coffee mug at Lifeway, right? You know, <laughs> biblical presuppositions and then just this list of how you can never measure up. Let's jump ahead here. Now we're about to, uh, to get into the five positions. That's probably all that we're going to have. We're just going to have time to stir up the hornet's nest and then let it soak but the first of the five positions, we're just going to try to keep it to five on how we understand this issue of God's, God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Number one will be called open theism. Uh, God doesn't know the future. And here is uh, one of the classic books called The God Who Risks. I had to read this for school, um, so you can put me on your prayer list for that. And um, the argument in the book is basically um, that uh, God doesn't know the future. <clears throat> okay. All right. We believe that we believe that he does. But what what may may be some problems here? Let, let's just kind of analyze this from the outside. For us as Christians, what may be the problem of having the God who risks? What do you think? How can you have a promise of eternal life if God doesn't know the future? Good point. 
How can you have a promise of eternal life when God doesn't know the future? Good point. Good. Now, once again, let let me kind of come to the defense here so we don't paint them like a, a cartoon character. They believe that God is really big and really smart, and he's got a lot of ways to know all the data in the world. So kind of like political analysts will give forecasts, economists will give forecasts, God has a lot of stuff that he can put together and give pretty sure forecasts on what may happen, but it's still uncertain. I didn't help people get to that question. Okay. Um, like, God created Adam, and he was disappointed when Adam failed. And mm-hmm. then there was the flood, mm-hmm. and everybody except Noah was eliminated from the world. So God regretted that he had created and got rid of everything. Right. So like, there are like all of these like opportunities for us to make it, but we never make it. And God like wipes us all out. To, to make. To, well, to make it or to like do good or okay. make it back to God. So, like, okay. so I had that question when I read this. Does he like... Did he know that we were going to fail? Like, mm-hmm. right. when he started it all? Good, good Not question. Good question. Okay, we're actually, that's right up next. Susan, did you hack in earlier and know exactly where? Because you called it. All right, good job. Um, let's, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's go to this text. We've got it here on the screen. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. And in fact, this, um, and then with another reference in Kings, and we'll, we'll read a question quote in just a minute, give rise to that question. Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention, it's pretty bad, right? Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart ever read this passage in the Bible? It does, unless you're, right? It's one of those like 2 a.m. in the morning reads where you're not really reading, you're just crashing, brain dead. This raises some questions. So um, this is actually a note, and I would encourage you, if you don't have one of these ESV study Bibles, I would encourage you to get one. Uh, We've got a lot of people in church who have them. Um, This is a note, and they've got some of the greatest scholars to contribute stuff. Um, So Here's the note on, on this issue. Uh, repent slash regret can be translated relent or, quote, change one's mind or, quote, have pity or compassion as well as, quote, be sorry or, quote, have regret. Um, and the illustration would be in 1 Samuel 15 uh, verses 11 and 35 to where it says, and the Lord was sorry, right, that he had made Saul king of Israel. And here's the note here, and I, I totally agree. I think this is very, very supported by on the Hebrew Bible. Quote, describes, this describes God's own feeling of sorrow or regret that Saul had turned out as he did, <clears throat> and does not even address the question whether God knew of it beforehand. I'm really confused, actually. Going back to the very first thing you had up on there, what did that say? The very first slide. Um, about God. I'm not sure. I can find it though. If God this here? This here? 
How can we believe? Yeah, if God made Adam and Eve, why, why did they have sin? Where did the sin come from? Mm-hmm. Okay, why, yeah. Why, I'm confused. Yeah. Did God well, give you choices? Okay, good, good. Let's, yeah, let's, let's, let's deal with that now. Um, this is a really neat, neat point that's helped me a lot. Um, th- think about what Adam and Eve were. They were human, right? But did they have, in being created, a sin nature? No. Do you know what they had that we don't have? They had total and complete, unbridled, unmitigated, unrestrained free will. Now, we still have a choice. We're going to look at some verses in the New Testament that says that the only thing that we desire until God comes and changes us is sin. Okay? It doesn't mean that we can't respond to the Lord, but when they were created, they were created as perfect humans. Right? There was no sin. But when you create someone as a human being, you create someone who has the ability to choose. Right? Because they were not robots. We're going to get to robot slide here in a little bit. So if you create, and this is so important, if God did not create robots, if God created humans, then a necessary part, a component of being human is the ability to love God. Right? And that's, that's why the Lord, ultimately it's for His glory, but He created us to have a relationship with Him and to love Him. And if I have the ability to love, what do I also have the ability not or to do or not to do? Yeah, to do the opposite, to not to love. In other words, to reject God and reject His love. So, when we ask the question, why did God create Adam and Eve as such, could God have created a world of robots? God can do what He wants to. But the question is, who is God? He's the greatest conceivable being who always does that which is best, right? So if God, and this is an amazing thought, if God creates a world, which He has created it, it would be the best conceivable world, right? Like God's not going to create a world that's like, like C plus, B minus, right? And throughout all eternity saying, you know what? I probably should have created an A plus world. He created the A plus world, but the A plus world in order to be that, where you have beings like us who are not robots, who have the ability to love, you also have to include in that the ability to choose not to love God. Because if it, was just, if it was a world that was simply perfect, then would it really be a world of value? Well, there wouldn't be any victory in that. Why? Well, because I'm a moral robot. I don't have any choice not to, to love God. And really, how could God get glory from that? There's no victory in, in stacking the deck. So, that, yes? I was just going to say, one of the things that when I read those first chapters in Genesis, and this question comes up about you know, the evilness aspect, or what did they choose, or did they have the ability to choose? Mm-hmm. I just remember that their communication with God is recorded, and they had open communication with Him, where they could, you know, they were physically present with Him at certain parts of the day, and yet they still chose. Mm-hmm. It's obvious that they chose to reject His instructions. Right. Even right. with the warning and the stipulation of what would happen if they did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. 
definitely. One of the things that really helped me a lot with that was using a Greek lexicon and understanding the word agape for God's love, and that it had to do not like filio, where you like somebody for things about them, but agape isn't necessarily about emotion, but about God choosing to be for us. Mm-hmm. And um, it pointed out that agape is the only term used for for God's love, but it's also the only term for the love He accepts from us. So understanding that in God's definition, it's not love if you don't have the ability to choose otherwise. Right. And it, right. the robot scenario is not loving in, in God's definition. So, sure. Um, they had to have the ability to choose. And if God is all good, and you choose against Him, what are you choosing? Well, it's not going to be good. So, yeah. That's a great way to put it, Ben. Does that make sense? Um, and and the, the go ahead. And he's not a dictator. You know, he's gonna he's gonna he gives you freedom of choice. He's not gonna force you to do what he wants. He wants you to love him, but he's not gonna force you into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, good, good, good points. And it's kind of that whole issue, the 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 phraseology for that question, John. It's counterfactuals of creaturely freedom. And what that essentially means, counterfactual, okay? If a counter of it, if I can love, if I have the ability, then therefore I have the ability. I'm not constrained. I'm not, I guess you could say, uh, dictatorized into yeah. doing something. That's not even a word. We just made it up, all right? Um, dictatorized, like, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not uh, obliged to do that. So um, the counterfactuals is that if I can choose, then therefore I have the innate ability not to choose that. And so when we think about everything's for the glory of God, even though there's going to be fires and there's going to be fallout in a world to where people are not robots, in the end it's going to glorify God that much more. And really, and, and that's a great point, Michael, about the character building in Job. Um, you think about... Um, let me give one scenario. I don't want to get too off base here, but there's, there's a scenario that you may get, this may come at you, people who would say, well, why couldn't God have, because there's so many directions this could go, and I'm trying to you know, keep it so we don't get too confused, but get some good stuff we can use um, with people who don't know the Lord. Why couldn't God give us the ability to choose, the ability to love, but then when we don't do the right thing, he comes in and takes care of the problem. And it's like having a child, you know, your child does the wrong thing and you take care of it for a long time. What happens to the child, you know? And John, that is exactly, that's a great, and that's what all, all the, you just hit a huge point. That's what they say. They say that, the, and this, the thinkers say, well, if that was the case, then we would all become moral monsters, Right? We would become to the point, so like all those spoiled kids that we knew, you know, the ones that nobody wanted to play with, the ones who, if they didn't, you know, get on base, even though they were tagged out, saying, I'm taking my bat and my ball and I'm going home, right, those kinds. Think about the level of depravity. And this is a scary thought that the whole human race would, would reach if we knew that the second we did something horribly evil, God would come in with a fire extinguisher and, and clean it out. And if God is, is mostly concerned with our hearts and not so much with our actions, 
We're talking about a human race that would be horribly, deeply, incredibly depraved. Because not only would we have this heart that says, we're presuming on God, well, God's going to take care of my problem, but it would be a heart that wouldn't even care about loving God because God would be the quintessential parent who spoils their child without any type of punishment, without any type of love. And so that, that, that's, that's a scenario that we can give to those people who say, well, why couldn't God have just created it? But then we don't have all this pain and suffering um, as well. But, um, but this, this question right here about, um, about um, does God change uh, his mind? The, the Hebrew word, it can um, refer to, to um, repentance in its innocence of changing one's mind. But it can also have to do with, and this, this really helped me out with understanding that the Hebrew and the Old Testament metaphors about when it says it repented the Lord, it can also have to do with when God sees evil, what it, we know that nothing can, can change God, but what it does, we'll just put this in, in terms that we normally use, what it does to the heart of God. And we just ask ourselves the question, is God stoic? In other words, when God is looking down, seeing evil happen, is God just like, well, that doesn't bother me? It bothers him enough to do what? Can you imagine, though, you know, your, your, your child that does something against you or does something wrong that hurts you truly? I mean, really makes you hurt. But after looking down and looking at millions of people doing the same thing to you, it hurts us just one. Mm. And then God's looking down at us and see millions of people down there wow. sitting against him. Wow. How bad that could hurt. Wow. Can you imagine how it hurts just one person? Just wow. One person. And it tears you up, tears your heart up. But he's looking down, looking at millions of people doing the same thing. Wow. And some of it's really evil. Too. That's it. You know, no joke. And then you know it hurts. No joke. Just, That's a great thought, Curtis. And I think that with, with that thought in mind, and you know, like you said, with, with the whole world, we think of what that does to the heart of God. So, and there's also a lot of references in the Old Testament, and the word there is the anthropomorphism. Like, if, if God could be a person, like, uh, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the whole world. It's not talking about God's eyeballs taking trips, right? Or, uh, or, or the, the strong arm of the Lord. Does that mean that God does a lot of curls, right? And God's got this huge... It's, it's not referring to that, but it's a way of describing God's power. Uh, with the eyes run to and fro, it's a way of describing how God knows everything. And, and for me, I, and once again, I can't be dogmatic about this, but with the way that the Hebrew can go either way um, about it could mean that God changed his mind or it means that what those things did to the heart of God, taken together with the fact that the Old Testament is full of those pictures, um, like of the arm of the Lord and this and that, it's, an, it, it's, it's a picture of kind of giving a human picture of God to help people understand what's happening and the way that God is reacting to that. And a key, some people say, well, I'm not yet convinced. Um, the best way when we read the Bible is to interpret the unclear by what is clear. Okay, and we've got like seriously three minutes, and we I don't even know if we're going to get to the text tonight. But um, when we get to these texts, um, in a f- couple of weeks, uh, we'll see very clearly that that God does know um, and He knows what's going on. Let, let me jump through these five positions uh, here really quick. Um, 
Let's see here. Uh, number one would be open theism, which says that God doesn't know the future, but he's constantly learning. Um, I don't think that that is, is biblical um, it, it, at all. Um, because if so, if this is the case, then prophecy is pretty dishonest. Because God is calling the shots, especially for the book of Revelation. That's a lot of shots to call. And if he's not certain, then that means that he's not necessarily honest, right? Because if you tell somebody this will happen, and you're not sure it does... It's kind of like shady shades. Um, number two would be Arminianism, which says that God simply foresees the future. Um, he sees what we're going to do. Number three would be Molinism, uh, which says God places persons in positions where their pre-choices will result in God's will. This is a really, really interesting position, right? Like God knows what, what, who we are. He knows our makeup. So he places us in specific positions to where our choices will produce his will. Um, and then we get to compatibilism, which means that you can have, uh, some people call it soft Calvinism, which means that you can have God's um, plan, but also a human choice. So it says that God determines the future, um, which means that it's certain, obviously going against open theism, without violating one's freedom. And then we go to number five, which is hard, uh, classic Calvinism, uh, which says that God determines the future. In other words, um, God is the one who every action is just it's just the decree um, of of God. And really, y'all, that's all that we have time for tonight. But um, where we're going to jump into right after that is some some pretty interesting scriptures. But uh, if if you want a copy of this stuff, just ask Mary, and she can print it all out, or we'll have it on the website probably by tomorrow night. And uh, feel free to download it. And once again, if this stuff is overload, this is the type of stuff. To where brilliant men and women of God have come down on different areas. They disagree, but this is no, wherever we come down on any of this, it's no reason to break fellowship or to get fired up. Because sometimes, have y'all seen this in church? To where sometimes people can take a small aspect of theology and they can kind of get that little, that little speck, right? And they can create it into a log. Y'all know we're just going Jesus metaphor. And they can bring that log into church, whether it be a view of prophecy or any of these positions. And they just begin to swing like it's a gang fight, right? Um, I don't ever want to be guilty of that. I want to, you know, any of these positions, um, treat, them, treat them with respect. But I think that a lot of times this stuff can be really heady, right? Like less difficult, that's, that's technical, but, but when we get to the end of this, I think out of any, for me personally, and this goes back to Jordan and his cancer, um, just the study of, of God's sovereignty and how that works, I don't think that there's any more encouraging, reassuring aspect of the Bible than the fact that God is absolutely in control. Yes, my choices matter. Yes, I do have responsibility to follow him. But man, at the end of the day, he is bigger than my mistakes. And he can even use my mistakes for his glory. And he loves me. And he loves me enough to keep me saved, even when my actions may get me unsaved, if it were up to my actions. So this is a really practical study. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to getting it in a couple of weeks.